This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of the Zoomer Week in Review, heard every Sunday at noon on AM 740 Zoomer Radio. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by Chartwell Seniors Housing, making people's lives better. Good afternoon and welcome to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Libby Snymer. It's a disgusting video. Employees at a Peterborough nursing home were caught on hidden camera abusing 85-year-old Helen McDonald. Even worse, experts say these incidents aren't isolated. Today, I'll be joined by Susan Ang, Vice President of Advocacy for CARP, to find out more. Plus, the controversial Conrad Black has released his new book, Flight of the Eagle is a Sweeping Look at American History, including the argument that the U.S. is now in decline. I'll be joined by Conrad Black a little later on, but first, here are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. A French commission is holding public consultations on a plan to build wind farms off the D-Day beaches of Normandy, and it wants to hear what Canadians think about it. A company plans to erect 75 turbines about 10 kilometres off the shore of Juneau Beach, where 359 Canadians died during the D-Day invasion on June 6, 1944. Canadians, along with Britons and Americans, can write in their opinions and register for updates on the debate. At least one Canadian who fought at Juneau Beach says he's very much against the proposal. Roy E. Eddy, now 88, calls the plan very disrespectful. Yuichiro Miura is a source of inspiration. At 80, the Japanese Zoomer has done something very few people of any age can accomplish. He's climbed Mount Everest. This week, he became the oldest person to ever reach the top of the mountain, a feat he called the world's best feeling. It's not his first trip to the summit. He trekked up the mountain when he was 75 and before that when he was 70. However, his record may not last long. The 81-year-old Nepalese climber Min Bahadur Shurchan is getting ready to climb Everest next week. He held the previous record for his climb at the age of 76. When Zoomers were young, most of us walked to school, but that is no longer the norm. The report card on physical activity for children and youth was released this week, and it assigns a D grade for active transportation, which includes things like walking and biking. The survey found only 70% of our kids meet the recommended targets for physical activity. Here's spokesman Mark Tremblay. Can those kids walk or bike to other things that are going on in their community, to their friend's house, to the baseball pitch, which might be a couple kilometers down the road or something? You know, this isn't just about to and from school, which often when we talk about active transportation, it immediately confines itself to that. So we're talking about any trips. And finally, a founding member of the 1960s rock group The Doors passed away on Monday. Ray Manzarek was 74. Manzarek's keyboard playing on Light My Fire has often been called one of the most recognizable sounds in rock history. 
The Doors sold more than 100 million records. Ray Manzarek's death comes 42 years after the demise of lead singer Jim Morrison. Manzarek died of bile duct cancer at a clinic in Germany. I'm Libby Snymer, and those are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. It's a shocking crime that happens with sickening regularity. The footage shows one worker taunting an elderly woman with feces-smeared rags and another worker repeatedly wrestling and hitting her, and yet another wiping his nose on her clean sheets. Four employees at a Peterborough nursing home had been suspended after a hidden camera revealed this abuse and neglect. Two investigations are underway and criminal charges may ensue. But what can be done to prevent the mistreatment of elderly patients suffering from dementia? Susan Ang, CARP's Vice President of Advocacy, has some ideas. You always turn your mind to, first of all, uh, feeling lots of sympathy for the family involved. But, you know, we have to think about what can we do to prevent this? Is the system going to address this itself? What is it doing Why do we have to keep seeing this? Is the only answer for families to put in a hidden camera? Because in the absence of anything else going right, that seems to be the answer. And I think that's not a good answer. It's not a good answer, but it's an answer. So what do we need that's going to address this problem in a more comprehensive way? You have to deal with all of this at the front line. It's not the senior managers that don't have this training or sophistication. It's the person who's looking after your aunt at night that you have to be worried about. And we shouldn't be worried about it. We should not be putting in hidden cameras. We should expect that the system itself will actually have in place protocols that hire the right people, screen out the wrong people, find out when these things are happening, let people know that they will be caught and they will be punished. I'm sure that the people running these places would like to be able to do this without well, they hidden say cameras. They, are. they also say they are, but obviously um, we don't have a lot of room for error here. There are, in fact, official rules around this. The legislation was changed, uh, came into effect in 2010, specifically to deal with elder abuse within the institution. You're supposed to report, they're supposed to investigate, you're supposed to call in the ministry hotline. All of that exists. Did it happen here? Well, no. Well, nobody was suspicious. I mean, the, the woman had bruises. That can happen because people in that state of health can often fall or, or whatever, but... Do we have an explanation about why they didn't investigate before? No, there is no explanation. And so here's another tip, if you will. All these kinds of complaints are supposed to show up on a website somewhere so that you can have a look if you have a family member that might have to be placed in a nursing home. And you're supposed to be able to look to see whether a particular nursing home has had complaints or whatever. But is that kept up to date? This particular complaint, several, you know, several days or, or weeks before he actually put in the camera, that wasn't reported. It wasn't investigated. So how good are these monitoring processes? Unfortunately, the answer is not good enough. The ombudsman has weighed in basically just to say that he doesn't have the authority to investigate. Do you think that that would be a good deterrent? Would you like to see the ombudsman able to monitor and investigate nursing homes? Well, in the absence of the system showing that it's policing itself well enough, that would be an answer. Indeed, Ontario now is the last jurisdiction that doesn't let its ombudsman have jurisdiction over 
the uh, nursing home sector, among other parts. So maybe that's what we need. Now, I I heard a, a union leader weigh in on this by saying the problem is that they're understaffed. Mm. What do you well, think of that? You know, <clears throat> there, there's uh, the iota of truth that I will give it is that if there was more staff to monitor these people, right, the, 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 the perpetrators, then you could perhaps prevent it, right? That's, that's about the only place I would put it. But really, when it comes down to human behavior, what amount of training and staffing would stop people like this from doing what they did? What are we left with here? Where, how do we move forward? I think people are, are getting angry, which is driven out of fear, because despite the fact that we are trying to keep many more people at home and, and so on, indeed, there is still a need for nursing homes. And by the time people are admitted to nursing homes, they're in a very acute state, usually with some dementia. In fact, 60% of the population coming into nursing homes now have some diagnosis of dementia, and they don't have the resource or the training to deal with this. So we better get at it because that's not going to get better. It's going to get a lot worse. Exactly. Susan Eng, thanks so much. Thank you. You can read more about CARP's efforts to end elder abuse online at carp.ca. I'm Libby Snymer, and this is the Zoomer Week in Review. Controversial Conrad Black has just written a new book. It's a sweeping look at American history from the founding fathers to the Obama administration. In just a moment, he'll join us to tell us about Flight of the Eagle. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by Chartwell Seniors Housing, making people's lives better. He's been a financier, the owner of a media empire, and a prisoner in a Florida jail. The controversial Conrad Black is preparing for his next gig as host of our sister station, Vision TV's upcoming program, The Zoomer. He's also a respected historian, and in the midst of all this, he wrote his sixth book, Flight of the Eagle, A Strategic History of the United States. I sat down with Conrad at our studios in Liberty Village. I had the thought that, well, there's obviously been a vast literature on the history of the United States. There is very little about the strategic decisions that were taken to take that country through various crises, indeed from its colonial origins to the paralleled and unprecedented influence it has had as a country in the last 60 or 70 years. The success of the country is at least as much dependent on the decisions its leaders have taken at absolutely critical moments. And do you believe that they were more important to the success of the country than the larger historical factors at play? Uh, Yes, given what they had, I think they were more important because you could have a floundering country in that geographic space of America, despite its wealth. You certainly could, And, and, and there are such. I mean, Russia, although it's a great civilization, is a somewhat floundering country. Argentina is a smaller country, but it's a rich country. At the end of World War II, it had the same standard of living as Canada, but it's been mismanaged politically. So the United States could have botched it. What, in your opinion, were the three most sensitive and critical moments in American history? Well, I I think you'd have to say the the founding of the country, the Civil War, and the, the, the 30s, the 30s to early 40s, the Great Depression and managing through the Second World War, uh, keeping, as Roosevelt did, the British in the war by supplying them and, and in, in effect, having an undeclared war. And then he managed to enter the war with an absolutely united country after Pearl Harbor. 
and to and help to assure that the Russians stayed in the war and didn't make a separate peace with Germany as they did in 1917. And at that point, we were the West, the Allies were bound to win. Okay, so in your opinion, who was the greatest president? I guess I would say Lincoln because I think he was. Uh, not necessarily more talented than Roosevelt, but uh, somewhat more ethically consistent and, uh, what should I say, uh, elevated person than FDR. I mean, FDR was, was, a, was a ruthless political operator in a way that Lincoln was not. Then who were the most underrated presidents? Uh, Nixon, because of the terrible uh, controversy that, that uh, engulfed his administration. He's still widely regarded as a bad president. And in fact, they... One term, the one full term that he had, was one of the most successful in the history of the country. And, uh, you know, he extracted 550,000 draftees from Vietnam while maintaining a non-communist government in Saigon, opened relations with China, negotiated and signed the greatest arms control agreement in history with the USSR, got the Cold War really de-escalating, abolished the draft, lowered the crime rate, stopped inflation, founded the Environmental Protection Agency, and he won by the biggest plurality in the history of the country, even now. Uh, but he, it's all, not, not completely, but for a long time, it was substantially obscured by Watergate, which was really a, a completely inadequate excuse to bring down an administration. And so why do you think it did? But he mismanaged the investigation, as he himself admitted, and, and just had no idea how, how, how it could become a threat to him until it was quite late. Right now you say America's in decline. Why? Well, look, first of all, I don't think it's an irreversible decline. It's not a free fall. It's not, it's, they're not just falling off the cliff. They're still the world's most important country. But yes, I, I, and the signs of it are you can't run deficits like this. When, when this president, Obama, was inaugurated four and a half years ago, after 232 years from the Declaration of Independence to his inauguration, they'd accumulated $10 trillion of national debt, and now it's $17 trillion. You, you now have a political discourse that's reduced, really, to each side shrieking epithets at each other. And, and it, it won't do, you know. You can't govern that way. So how is it that those institutions that served the country so well at the beginning are almost unworkable now? Well, I think they're temporarily unworkable, and I think the reason that they are is that the Americans in their history always identified the challenges to them as a country and met the challenge. It took a long, long time, but they met the problem of slavery. It was a terrible war, but they did deal with the problem. And they, they dealt with the threat of Nazi Germany. They dealt with the threat of international communism. They dealt with the economic depressions they'd had before that. And I, I think they've shown an inexplicable length of time recognizing that there is a challenge, but it's internal. It's the decay of their institutions. And when they do focus on it, if there's any leadership at all, they'll follow the time-honored practice in the U.S. of the president saying we have a very serious problem. And, and various presidents have done that in different matters. You but know, like, he, Barack Obama has yeah, No, he's tried. not going to do it, and, and his predecessor didn't do it. Barack Obama, mm -hmm. uh, you say something that I found incredibly politically incorrect. You say that he was elected essentially to assuage American guilt. I think that was the subliminal message of his campaign, and I want to emphasize that I give him great credit for it. I think it was a genius campaign. He was successful in doing it, 
because of the message. It was time, and it was time, by the way. Absolutely, it was time and long past it to show that a, a non-white person could be elected president. It's a great thing that it happened. His message really to the country was, look, the great majority of you, my fellow citizens, are reasonable, decent people and happen not to be of my pigmentation. And therefore, the majority of you, when you think about it, do feel some sense of embarrassment or guilt or even shame at the way our people were treated. And you can put all that behind you, never trouble yourselves with that awkward feeling again, and as a bonus, you'll never have to listen to charlatans like Jesse Jackson and Al Sharpton again if you vote for me. It was a genius message. Now, you mentioned your stay in prison mm. as a guest of the American penal system. Do you think that had an impact on the way you view American history? Uh, no, it had an impact on how I view the country now because I saw how corrupt the justice system is. But um, my admiration for the high points and the leading figures of American history is completely undimmed by that. My regard for the country today has been somewhat influenced by it. And what does America have to do to pull itself out of the decline? All it needs is some leadership. They're going to have to get serious about health care instead of this completely inadequate measure that's really making things worse that Obama forced through. They're going to have to do something about the justice system eventually. It's terrorizing the whole country. Uh, where 99.5% of prosecutions are successful, 97% of them without a trial. I mean, that's not justice. And, uh, and does anyone really imagine that 15% of the whole American population, over 20% of the adults, are really felons? Because that's what the statistics say. 48 million people with a criminal record? I mean, this is ludicrous. So you, you used to have to deal with these problems in the order of their importance, and you have to start with the deficit. Okay, Conrad Black, thank you so much. <laughs> thank you, Libby. Flight of the Eagle is published by Signal, an imprint of McClelland and Stewart. Conrad Black's new program, The Zoomer, will debut on Vision TV this fall. I'm Libby Snymer, and this is the Zoomer Week in Review. Well, I've been afraid of change. That's the voice of Stevie Nicks, the Fleetwood Mac singer turns 65 today, and in just a moment, we'll celebrate with some of her music. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by Chartwell Seniors Housing, making people's lives better. Welcome back to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Libby Zneimer. It's time for your international arts datebook tips for those of you who are jetting around the world. Here's Jane Brown. In New York City, A Picture of Autumn is a revival of an N.C. Hunter play from 1951. It's about a couple decaying along with the ancestral home in which they live. A Picture of Autumn is at the Mint Theater on West 43rd Street. In Los Angeles, see the best of the Museum of Contemporary Art's permanent collection from the 1940s to the present. The pieces represent important historical movements in art, as well as recent works by L.A.-based artists. To London, England, where Dame Judi Dench plays alongside Ben Wishaw in Peter and Alice. But why mustn't I grow up? It seems the most marvellous thing in the world to be owned. And wear gowns and gloves and hats. I think I know what childhood's for. 
It's to give us a bank of happy memories against future suffering. The original Alice in Wonderland comes face to face with the original Peter Pan in this highly acclaimed play on stage at the Noel Coward Theatre. I'm Jane Brown, and that's the International Arts Day Book. Well, I've been afraid of that's the voice of Stevie Nicks, one of the biggest female singers in rock and roll history. Between her role as a principal songwriter and vocalist in the band Fleetwood Mac and her extremely successful solo career, she had over 40 top 50 hits and sold 140 million albums. She was deemed the reigning queen of rock and roll and one of the 100 greatest singers of all time by Rolling Stone magazine. She was even inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame as a member of Fleetwood Mac in 1998. Today, Stevie Nicks is celebrating her 65th birthday. And right now we'll hear one of her biggest hits. It's a song she wrote for Fleetwood Mac's 1977 album, Rumors. Here is Dreams. That was Fleetwood Mac with Dreams, a song written by Stevie Nicks, who is celebrating her 65th birthday today. And that brings us to the end of another edition of the Zoomer Week in Review. I'm Libby Snymer. Thanks so much for joining me today. Can money buy happiness? Please come back next week to hear the latest science on that. You've been listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, produced by MZ Media Limited. Executive producer, Moses Snymer. Produced by Paul Thomas. Program Director, John Vandriel. This has been an exclusive podcast of the Zoomer Week in Review. Heard every Sunday at noon on AM 740 Zoomer Radio. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network. Home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.